Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. Well, today we're going to be continuing our study of the book of Exodus, and we're kind of uh, coming to a, um, a turning point in the story as we're going to be wrapping up what's known as the covenant conversation that uh, we've been focused on for the last couple of months. So as we come to this transition, I'd like to just take a moment and bring everyone up to speed, just kind of do a quick review of uh, where this book has taken us. You might remember the word Exodus actually means exit. So this book is named for the exit of God's people from Egypt. And we remember the story where God called Moses to be his spokesperson. And early in the book of Exodus, we see that he sends him back to Egypt where Moses grew up. And he is confronting the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And as God's spokesperson, he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no. So God then sends 10 plagues upon the Egyptians. And after the 10th the plague, Pharaoh changes his no to go. And he lets God's people, the Israelites or the Hebrews, leave Egypt or exit Egypt. And so then we see that they make it as far as the Red Sea and Pharaoh, the king, changes his mind, sends his army after the Israelites. And then you'll remember that incredible miracle at the Red Sea where God parts the waters and God's people, the Israelites, walk through on dry land, dry ground. The Egyptian army follows after them and the waters cave in and the Egyptian army perishes in the Red Sea. After that incredible miracle, after the crossing of the Red Sea, the Israelites then crossed several deserts. And we read in the narrative, and we've talked about how God miraculously and abundantly provided for their needs, their physical needs, as well as their protection. And they ultimately end up at Mount Sinai. And it was a very important place and a very important time because it was at Mount Sinai that God was going to give to them their covenant law. And that's where we've been the last few months, talking about the covenant law. And they spent about a year at Mount Sinai, seeing God's revelation, receiving the Ten Commandments. The law is summarized by the Ten Commandments. And then also having other interactions, other teachings about the covenant that came from God. And so that's where we've been. We went through the Ten Commandments one at a time. And then last week we talked about some of the other laws that God gave them, very specific laws that came right after the Ten Commandments. And one of those laws that we focused on last week was known as the Lex Talionis. And that's the law of retaliation. And we often see that. We talked about it last week where you see the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
And this is a law that uh, many people, both in the Old Testament, the New Testament, in the modern world, have completely misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied. And we talked about that last week, and we talked about what Jesus had to say about the, about the lex talionis. And when he said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but he said, but I say to you, this is not about kind of righting your own wrongs or getting revenge. That's how it's been misinterpreted and misapplied. And instead, he said that when your enemy hits you in the face, slaps you in the cheek, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. And he goes on to give other examples. When a Roman soldier asks you to carry his 50 to 60 pound backpack a mile, which was required, was allowed by law, then he said, carry it two miles. And so we talked about Jesus' approach to one's enemies last week. Radical restraint, radical love, radical grace, and completely nonviolent. Well, today, as we turn the pages, that's found in Exodus 21, where he first gives the principle of the lex talionis, as we turn the pages, a few pages over and a few chapters over to Exodus 23, we're going to read about God authorizing a conquest of the promised land, a violent overthrow of the people who live there. And that leaves us with a little bit of a, a challenge a little bit of a dilemma, if you will, a moral dilemma. How do we reconcile the God of Jesus who clearly taught nonviolence, truly emphasized radical restraint, radical love, and radical grace with the God of the Old Testament that authorizes a violent conquest? And so the title of this message is The Conquest of the Promised Land and the Moral Tension It Creates. I don't know about you, but I have a moral tension that comes from this issue, this two portraits of God that seem to be contrasting and conflicting. Well, let's see what we can learn about this today. First of all, let's read the passage in Exodus 23 where he's talking about what's about to happen. Remember, they're traveling from Egypt to the promised land. And that was part of the Abrahamic covenant, that God would make them into a great nation, and he would bless that nation with many descendants. Then he would bless those descendants by making them a great nation who would bless other nations. Then ultimately, he would bless them by giving them a new land, the promised land. That's where they're headed. From Mount Sinai, they're going to go to the promised land. And so we hear a conversation about this at the end of Exodus 23, starting in verse 20. It says, See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. Now, one question we might need to ask here is this, is this angel a representative of God or a representation of God? 
And there's a big difference. Most angels that we read about are representatives of God. They're, they're God's uh, servants, God's ambassadors. They're working for God. But here, most theologians believe that this is something more. And one reason we believe that is because only God can forgive. And it says, do not rebel against him. If you do, he will not forgive your rebellion. And also then says, my name is in him. Most believe that this is a representation of God himself. And we do see that in other places of scripture where God, the Lord himself, is described as an angel. Some believe this was actually the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ leading them towards the promised land. And then he says here in verse 22, it says, if you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. So here we're introduced to some of the people groups that were living in the promised land at the time of the Exodus. These are the people that God was going to remove and wipe out. If we read in the rest of the story of scripture, sometimes there are other people groups mentioned with these six. In fact, there's one list of 10 different people groups. We often call them, or theologians call them, and I'll refer to them today simply as the Canaanites. All of the people that were living in Canaan at the time of the Exodus and ultimately at the time of the conquest. It says, do not bow down before their gods, verse 24, or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. So here we have God reminding the Israelites of the first two commandments. Have no other gods before me. Love me first, most, and only me. And also have no graven images of other gods. That's the second commandment. And these are two things that are absolutely detestable to God. And it's who the Canaanites were. They were polytheist idol worshipers. And he says, if you will worship me and only me, then I'm going to bless you. And he talks about four blessings. I'm going to give you food, water, all kinds of provision. And I'm going to take away sickness from among you. There will be uh, no one miscarrying. You're going to be fertile and multiply uh, with lots and lots of children and babies. And then I'm going to give you a full lifespan. Now, this is a very specific promise for a very specific time that he's giving. And it's considered a blessing to the people as they enter the promised land. But look what he says next about their enemies, the Canaanites. Verse 27, I'll send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I'll make all of your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of the way. 
And then he says, but I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. So little by little will I drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. So again, very violent terminology. They're gonna, my terror is gonna go ahead of you. I'm gonna throw them into confusion. Uh, they're gonna be like uh, they're running. Your enemies are gonna turn and run like hornets are coming after them. And then he says, but for you, I'm gonna do it kind of slowly over a period of time. It'll be a process so that the land won't be overgrown and the animals too hard for you to take control of the land. Then verse 31, he said, I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert to the Euphrates River. The Red Sea is the southernmost border. In fact, Israel today actually has a port city, the city of Alat, on the um, its southernmost border, it's on the Red Sea. It's absolutely beautiful, spectacular place in the southern desert. And then it says, um, he says, the borders to the Mediterranean Sea, that's the western border. And then just on the other side of the Jordan River, you have the desert, that's the eastern border. And then to the north, the Euphrates River. And I'm gonna give into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. And then finally he says, do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. So in essence, don't make any peace treaties. Don't make any deals. Get rid of these people or else they'll become a snare to you with their idolatry. So there you have it. And we have, I think, quite a contrast here. The God that we talked about last week, the God of radical restraint, love, a God who offers amazing grace that we're supposed to model. And then over here, and what we just read, a God who authorized a violent conquest. You know, those who are not believers, those of who are atheists, those who are trying to discredit Christianity in us and what we believe will often go to the conquest. And they'll say, see, you say your God is a God of love, but look at this story. Look at your own Bible, the conquest. He's not really a God of love, they say. He's a God of hate. And they'll say, how could a loving God authorize totally wiping out and destroying innocent people? And they'll say things like, how can your God really be righteous when in essence he authorizes a genocide? And they'll even say things like, your God, the God of the Bible, is a moral monster because of what we read in these pages. Those are some of the accusations. That's some of the things that are being thrown our way against us in our beliefs and our faith. So what are you going to say to them? How are you going to answer these hard questions? 
How are you going to reconcile the moral tension maybe that you are feeling? Maybe you haven't thought a lot about this before, but maybe right now you're starting to think about it. And maybe you, like me, feel the moral tension that this creates. Well, let me just kind of try to give you a little bit of my thoughts and my answer based on some more of the biblical information. Part of our answer is there is a, an imbalance in their view, and in fact, in many of our views of God. We see God as a God of love. He is a holy God, absolutely, and in his holiness, he is full of compassion, mercy, forgiveness, and love. And love is really one of those chief attributes that we highlight. And he is absolutely all of that, a God of glorious love, a good God of love. But we have to remember there is another side to God, another chief attribute of his holiness. And that is he is a God of justice. And he will justly judge and punish sin and sinners. Rightly so. And so we have to understand these two main attributes. And then we'll see how in a moment they come together to give us the true picture. Here's a few things as well that I think some information that might help us understand why God reacted the way he did, why he did what he did, why he ordered this conquest. The first one is the Canaanites were not innocent people. You read through the scriptures and it gives us quite a bit of information. First of all, we know they were polytheists and they were idol worshipers. And not only did they worship idols, but they were proponents of idolatry spreading it rapidly. And they were really evangelists for idols and idolatry and all the gods and goddesses that they believed in. And so this is highlighted really in this part of the story and in many other places in the Old Testament. Secondly, we see in their worship of their gods and goddesses that they did something absolutely detestable and evil, and that is they participated in child sacrifices. They allowed their babies to be put on the altar and sacrificed, burnt offerings to their gods and goddesses. We read about that in places like Deuteronomy chapter 12 and Deuteronomy chapter 18. Horribly evil and detestable. We also see in Deuteronomy 18 that they were proponents of witchcraft and sorcery and all kinds of divination, things that God strictly forbid his people from doing and considers evil and wrong. Then you can also go to places like Leviticus 18 and you see that the Canaanites were horribly immoral, especially in the sexual arena of life. All kinds of sexual sins are listed one after the other 
in Leviticus 18, and essentially they were sins that the Canaanites had committed and were committing, and the Israelites were forbidden to have anything to do with. So the point is, they were not innocent people. They were very, very sinful people. Their culture had become very, very evil. Thus, a judgment. A second thing that we need to understand is that God patiently gave the Canaanites time and opportunity to repent. There's a a verse, a passage that's actually given in Genesis 15 that tells us about this. Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16. This is uh, the words that were given to Abraham when God initially made all of those promises to Abraham that he was gonna bless him with many descendants, make those descendants into a great nation, and then ultimately bless all the nations of the world through him and then give that nation a new land, a promised land. When he made that to Abraham, and again, this is about uh, 800 to 1,000 years prior to the Exodus, prior to the conquest. Look what the Lord says to Abraham. It says, and the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a land, a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. He's talking about they're going to be enslaved in Egypt. But then he says, but I'll punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they'll come out with great possessions. He's talking about the punishment of the Egyptians by all of the plagues and their judgment And then he's talking about the Exodus. Then verse 15, you, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. That's talking about Abraham. And then verse 16, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Very interesting statement. You're going to come back, meaning your descendants are going to come back to the promised land. That's the the, the conquest that we're talking about. And then it says that, but the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That means that God was being very patient with the Canaanite people, no doubt hoping and wanting and desiring that they would repent. And that's what God does. He patiently waits for sinners to repent. I think he was giving the Egyptians every chance in the world to repent and Pharaoh a chance to repent. And if they had, I think he would have relinquished his judgment and his punishment upon them. If the Canaanites had repented, I think he would have relinquished his judgment upon them and he would have done it a different way. We see God, even later in the story, you might remember the story of Jonah going to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, a horribly violent, cruel, immoral people group. And he was gonna judge them, but Jonah was supposed to give them the message uh, to repent, and if they followed it, guess what God did? He pulled back, and he did not destroy them. God always wants to give sinners a chance to repent, and he's very patient. Gave them almost half a millennium to repent from their wicked ways, but they didn't. 
And so judgment came in the form of the conquest. And think about this too. There were some who did repent. Think about Rahab. You remember that story? The very first battle of the conquest, the battle of Jericho. Rahab, who was she? She was the prostitute who hid the spies. And she said, I want to follow your God. I want to believe in your God. And they honored that. Rahab was basically able to adopt the family of God. And not only that, she wasn't a second-class citizen. She ends up showing up in the most amazing way. She's in the family tree of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1, verse 5. Incredible. And what that says is that if you choose God, he will choose you. If you repent, he will give you all of the blessings. And that's been a story all the way through the Bible, including for us. Paul talks about how we who were outside of God's will, outside of God's plan, were grafted into the family as Gentiles. And we get to be heirs of Christ and receive all of these amazing, glorious benefits that he gives us. But it requires repentance that's part of faith. It requires faith in him, which means we repent of our sins. So we just need to remember that God wanted the Canaanites to repent and was giving them every opportunity, but there was a time when their sin reached full measure, his patience runs out and judgment comes. We also need to know that God played by his own rules with his own people. You know, if you read this last part of Exodus 23 that we talked about, he says, do not make a covenant with them or their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they'll cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. If you read the rest of the story, that's exactly what happened. They disobeyed God. They didn't fully push out the Canaanites and they ultimately were influenced by their immoral culture and by their false, their worship of false gods, their idolatry. And so what happens eventually to God's people? If you keep reading the story, you read through Joshua, Judges, into the Samuels and Kings, and God has to judge his own people. And he sends them into exile, allows them to be conquered. So God is playing fair, is what, we're, what, is what I think we're seeing. He's playing by his own rules with his own people. And then, ultimately, we see that God played by his own rules with his own son, Jesus. Pretty extraordinary. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26. I'll just put it up on the screen for you. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. We jump down to verse 26. It says, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. What this is saying is that this God, this God who will justly judge sin, who must by his nature, his holy nature, must judge sin has put his judgment upon Jesus Christ 
on the cross, his one and only son, allowed him to take the punishment for sin and the judgment that sin entails. And then we, who have responded in faith and repented, what happens to us? We are justified. We're forgiven. Christ's righteousness is imparted to us. And so what we see on the cross, through Christ's death on the cross, we see God's love and God's justice coming together. And they meet. God is a God of love, yes. And with his love comes amazing, amazing grace, yes. But he is also a just God of justice who must and will punish sin justly. And those meet on the cross. Thank God they meet on the cross. And God played by his own rules with his very own son. He did not compromise his justice. He could have. He could have said, no, this is too much, Jesus. But he couldn't compromise his nature. Sin requires judgment. Wrongs must be righted. Justice must occur, and it did occur graciously by God's amazing love on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish what we deserve, would not have to face the punishment for our own sin that we deserve. We would not face the death that sin results in, the spiritual death that we deserve, would not perish, but instead receive everlasting life. That's the gospel. And that's what our detractors don't fully understand. They need to hear and understand the gospel. And guess what? God is still up to his same ways. Second Peter chapter 3. Listen to this. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Meaning God's eternal. Time doesn't really matter much to God. And then he says here in verse 9, But the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Once again, God is patiently awaiting for sinners to repent. And if they repent, guess what happens? If they repent by putting their faith in him, he forgives them, us, of our sins, and he imparts his righteousness to us. And we get to be part of his people. And we get to experience all of his glorious blessings. If there's one here today, if there's someone here today that maybe has not yet fully understood how God's justice and his love met at the cross. 
And they're ready to meet you today. He's ready to meet you today at the foot of the cross. Today can be your day of salvation. Your day when you pass from death to life, where you meet him for real, the real God, the God of love, the God of just judgment, and they come together to love you. That's what he wants. Today could be your day of salvation. All you have to do is offer a simple prayer. You have to believe that he is who he said he was, believe the Bible, all of the Bible, how it describes our Lord, our God. And then you put your faith, you repent of your sins, you acknowledge you're a sinner. And then you basically say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I wanna commit my life to following you from this point forward. It's as simple as that. Simple process with profound implications. Today could be your day of salvation. If it is, I want you to talk to to me or one of the staff afterwards. Let us know about your decision so we can walk alongside you and help you to grow into the fullness of this beautiful faith, this faith journey that you've begun. Thank God that he's a God of love, but also a God of justice. Let's worship him now as we pray. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.